FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Rachel Rodman. Rachel focuses her practice on representing banks, specialty finance companies, and other financial services institutions in government investigations and litigation in trial and appellate courts. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tilsia. I'm happy to be here. So you managed to join a new firm during a pandemic. Tell us, what has that been like for you? It's been a really interesting experience. I never thought I would make such a big move under these kinds of circumstances. And I honestly didn't know what to expect. So what was interesting about my transition is that I received an offer right before everything shut down. And of course, there was just so much uncertainty about what was going on. And when I was finally able to start, which was several months later, I had a lot of nerves about how I was going to integrate, how I was going to meet people, my whole plan for Internal marketing, which is so important as a lawyer joining a new firm, was basically thrown out the window. And honestly, this has been my approach to everything as an attorney. You get to know people best when you are working with them, when you are contributing. My approach has really been to try to find projects and have collaborations with my colleagues on things that I feel like I'm really able to contribute on and just to, you know, work together and get to know people in that way. I do think that video conferencing, which was not something I ever particularly used before. I mean, I would be at my desk, I was on my phone, I did email, and then I had in-person meetings. And when I needed to meet with people, I would go down to their office or I needed to meet with a client, I would fly to, (laughs) to meet with them. And I'm not doing any of that right now, but there's a lot of video conferencing. So whereas I would normally just be on the phone with someone, now almost every call I have is through WebEx. And I think there are times when that's exhausting to always be on the camera, but overall, I think people's comfort level with video has really taken the edge off of a disconnect that you'd otherwise feel. The one sort of personal note I'll share is I feel like it will be so bizarre when we all get together in person because here I am, I've joined a new firm, I'm working closely with people day in, day out, but I only see them over video and being with someone, having their personal presence is so different really than seeing them over the video. And I myself am tall, so I am over six feet tall and I just know that when I meet everybody, they're all going to say, oh my gosh, I had no idea how tall you are. So I have to start maybe dropping things into my conversations with them as we get closer to meeting in person. So they're not just completely shocked. You may want to give them a little hint. I think I will, because I think people are going to have sort of an idea of you in their mind. And then we're all going to have to readjust to what people are actually like when we meet them in person. I mean, I think the other tricky thing is that you're not just starting a new firm, but a big part of the work that you do as a partner of a firm is business development. How did you manage that during COVID? I think that the COVID pandemic 
is going to change business development, not just during this time when people are isolating, but moving on into the future. I have a lot of questions and I don't think everyone's figured out what our new workplace schedules are going to be. I could imagine there's a lot more flexibility with work from home. You may not always have people in the office. And so what I've relied on, again, is video conferencing. And in some ways, it makes it easier because it's just not that difficult for someone to say, sure, let's have a Zoom coffee. And it's just more casual. You're not waiting until you're in San Francisco or flying to Chicago to meet somebody. So I think it's really been advantageous from that perspective, where, again, I think you hit limitations is so much of business development. My view is I develop relationships. I don't develop those relationships for the short term. It's not about my contacts have a case that's right for me at the moment. It's about an exchange. It's a back and forth of networking, understanding what my contacts are doing, understanding the challenges they're facing, whether or not that's something that I personally work on. But of course, those relationships are always aided by being able to be together in person. So I think we do lose something. I'm sure everyone feels this way. But I think we also have to look at the advantages, which is quick touch points are much easier. The ability to dial into webinars is easier. So we just have to use the tools we have right now and try to get the most out of them. So let's delve a little bit more into your area of expertise. What are you seeing in the consumer finance space? My background is actually as a general civil litigator. That's how I started my career, as I was an associate at a Washington, D.C. law firm called Williams & Connolly. And I wasn't specialized in any way, which as someone who really saw a future in private practice, I thought that would be a problem. You really do want to have an area where you've got a lot of expertise. I think certainly with how competitive the legal practice has become, most clients want to know that this isn't your first rodeo. So I was fortunate when I was an associate, was offered and accepted a position with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And this was at the time when they were just ramping up, so in 2011. When I got there, I didn't know very much about consumer finance, and I completely fell in love with it. I don't think there are that many areas of law that are so important on an individual level Can someone buy their first home? Can someone get access to credit so they can buy a car? I mean, every single person in this country relies on these credit products, not to mention money transmission and credit reporting, debt collection, all the other aspects of consumer finance. So it's so important just on an individual level. But then, as we found in the credit crisis, these products are the backbone of our capital markets and our larger financial system. It's just such an interesting and dynamic area, and there's so much variation. You have some of the world's most sophisticated financial institutions, much smaller, closely held companies that are in the space. And then you also have now tech. Tech is a huge part of consumer finance. So there's an incredible amount of variation. And as a lawyer, it's heavily regulated. So where things have a lot of regulation, there's often a lot of opportunity for lawyers to advise on compliance and other issues. And if you have a problem as a litigator, the more regulated things are, the more you can be exposed to lawsuits and other kinds of risk. So it's been just a really great area of specialization. 
endlessly fascinating and endlessly dynamic. And I would really encourage young lawyers to think about specializing and think about consumer finance because I think there's so much opportunity here. In terms of what I'm seeing, I don't think we can talk about consumer finance right now, Tilsia, without talking about the fact that we are on the brink of a new administration. And for financial regulatory agencies at the federal level, that transition has not always been so impactful because the SEC is governed by a commission. And there's been some separation between the traditional federal executive agencies and independent financial regulatory agencies like the OCC, the FDIC, and like my old agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We have seen, though, a movement in the Supreme Court in their cases and their precedent to bring independent regulatory agencies increasingly under the direct control of the executive and of the president. So we recently had a Supreme Court case called SELA Law where the Supreme Court held that the CFPB director, he is removable by the president for any reason. He used to be protected from removal, so he had some separation and insulation from the executive. That's no longer the case. That decision came down in the summer. And so it's expected that, you know, in the next couple of days or very, very soon, Director Craninger, who's currently the head of the CFPB, will step down and there will be new leadership under the Biden administration for the agency. Generally, my take is that you will see the agency be more active in a couple of ways. The first is the CFPB has the ability to expand its supervisory authority over non-bank financial institutions. They can do this through rulemaking. It is not something that the Trump administration, CFPB, has done. And it's a very, very powerful tool because basically it takes institutions that aren't regulated through an examination authority and brings them under that fold. And there can be some growing pains in that process because the expectations of federal examiners, as you know, Tilsia, can be (laughs) different than what companies are used to. And so this is something that I would expect to see. In fact, Richard Cordray, before he left the Bureau, indicated that He was looking at expanding the agency's supervisory authority over installment lenders. And this would include, depending on how the rulemaking shakes out, this could include fintech companies, many of whom are really, they're installment lenders. They're providing unsecured credit to consumers. So I think that would be a very significant change. I also expect to see enforcement that will push the boundaries of the CFPB's authorities. So it's not just that we may see more actions or that we may see higher penalties because we anticipate that the CFPB under a Biden administration may be less receptive to defenses from financial institutions, but we may see them testing the limits of their authority as well, more so than they have under the current administration. Another big focus I expect will be around CARES Act. So a lot of the borrower protections that were mandated by Congress and the CARES Act relate to student lending and mortgages. The CFPB has authority over those areas and has already indicated that they are examining compliance with the CARES Act. And one area that's a little bit of a sleeper in consumer finance is small business lending. The CFPB has authority to enforce ACOA, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and it's implementing regulation, regulation B. Those regulations, which are fair access to credit regulations, more or less, apply to small business lending. So it's a little bit of a carve out for an agency that's otherwise concerned about transactions with consumers. 
And they have already announced that they will be looking at fair lending compliance with respect to the Paycheck Protection Program in institutions who participated. We haven't seen any enforcement actions flow from that yet, but I would expect to see that in the coming year. So given where you believe things are going to be heading, is there any general steps that you feel financial institutions should be doing now? Should they be taking a look and assessing their policies and procedures? What should they be thinking about right now? Compliance management is always a really important aspect of any financial institution. But I think as an enforcement defense lawyer, having a strong compliance management system is a critical component of enforcement defense. Because federal banking agencies, when they're going to deploy their enforcement authority, there's a couple of different reasons why they do that. One is just, in their judgment, there's been really significant harm that hasn't been remediated. And a second reason is that they want to convey something to the market, right? So the CFPB was very much criticized in the Cordray era for doing regulation by enforcement. So they want to communicate a message to the industry based on the facts of a specific case about what's appropriate and not appropriate under the law. When a company has very solid policies and procedures, when they have really good QA and QC, when they can convey to an agency that they self-identified an issue and self-remediated, it can take the wind out of the sails of an agency justifying using enforcement resources to address that problem because the company can credibly say, we have already addressed it. And being able to make that case to an agency is a very powerful defense, in addition to other defenses like you have the facts wrong or you have the law wrong. Oftentimes, the government can be hard to get off their perch on those issues. They can come in with a pretty strong view of the facts and a pretty strong view of the law where companies often really have a chance to shape the narrative is around how their internal systems are designed in the future to address that issue and hopefully in the past have identified and addressed that issue. So given that we expect there to be a heightened enforcement environment coming into a Biden administration, any of those proactive steps that a company can take to fortify themselves, take a close look at fair lending issues, because we know that will be a priority. Take a close look at debt collection. That's another area where the CFPB has been very active. Try to think about it from an outsider's perspective. What would an examiner's expectation be of what your compliance management system should look like? I would recommend any of those steps right now. Excellent. And given that you have the pleasure of not only being a partner at a major law firm right now, but also having been an attorney at the CFPB. Are there any lessons that come to mind that you want to pass along to current and future clients about having that perspective? I'm very proud of my agency experience. I not only learned a tremendous amount about the consumer finance market and the laws that regulate that market, but I got to understand agency priorities and what it's like to be on the receiving end of advocacy from another side who wants to convince you to adopt their view of the world. <laughs> you know, I was an enforcement lawyer. And so I was across the table from financial institutions who were advocating to me that I had it wrong or there were policy reasons for why the agency shouldn't move forward with an enforcement action. 
you know, in terms of how that influences my defense practice, it's really important to understand the policy goals of any enforcement action because an agency has the discretion to bring cases or to not bring cases. And to justify using enforcement resources, which are limited, to bring a case, there has to be a reason behind it. It's usually a little bit more, you know, multifaceted. And I think oftentimes lawyers can get sort of dug in on trying to convince the agency on the facts or the agency has the law wrong. And they're oftentimes very, very difficult to bridge a gap on those kinds of issues. But the policy issues are the ones that sometimes not emphasized. They can be a place where I think you can have an impact in trying to explain to an agency why this case isn't one for use of those precious enforcement resources. And so kind of critical to that is credibility. And this is not just in agency defense. This is just in my experience as a litigator in court. Your most important currency is your credibility. And so in all walks of life, when I was an enforcement lawyer and I was dealing with the other side, and now that I'm a defense attorney and I deal with my old colleagues at the agency, you always have to be mindful, even though you're wearing different hats and you have different purposes, of your personal credibility and integrity. And then in my current practice, I use that for the benefit of my clients and make sure that everything that we represent, everything that we are conveying is accurate. And you really just want to use that to create an environment where you can have more of a back and forth, as opposed to arguing with each other across a divide. That is such a critical point, Rachel. Credibility, and I would also say consistency, right? Because a lot of times when we're doing this kind of work, especially in consumer finance, but just across the board, a lot of times what we're looking for and we want to establish is a level of consistency and also commitment from senior management if you're in a remediation kind of situation. Yeah, I completely agree. Sometimes you just don't agree. Sometimes the positions that an agency takes, for example, on the law, can put companies out of business. There's no way to resolve that. And my job as a defense lawyer is to work with the agency, present my client's view of the world, present all of the reasons from a policy perspective why enforcement is not the right tool to address this issue and to see what kind of deal the agency will offer, get the best possible deal for my client. But it is a client business decision whether or not to take that deal and whether to fight. And sometimes clients choose to fight because they think that the facts don't bear out what the agency is saying, the agency is being too aggressive. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why a client might make that choice. But that's not my job, right? My job is to go into the agency and use all the tools at my disposal to try to resolve something so that my clients have a decision to make about what path they want to choose. Now, I know that another area that your firm is very active in is LIBOR preparedness. Can you tell us a little bit about what your firm is doing in that space? I'm happy to. So Cadwallader is, I would say, a market leader in LIBOR preparedness. It wasn't something that I had been working on until I joined the firm. And it's a really interesting and important area in financial services. So there have been 
for your as listeners are aware, there were a number of scandals around the manipulation of LIBOR, which is a benchmark rate that all kinds of financial products are tied to. And that rate is being discontinued. The dates have changed a little bit, and it depends on the tenor of LIBOR, but in general, USD LIBOR, so US dollar LIBOR, either at the end of this year, 2021, or for certain other tenors, June of 2023. And so financial institutions are engaged in a massive project to move existing financial instruments to a new benchmark rate. And that involves a host of contractual issues. There's commercial issues in terms of what rate should replace LIBOR. And then, of course, in the consumer space, anytime you have to change a contract, you have the overlay of the consumer protection laws on top of just general contract law. So first of all, are you permitted under a contract to move to a new benchmark rate? And then you have an overlay of consumer protection around UDAP, so unfair and deceptive acts and practices, the consumer disclosure laws are all triggered. So banking agencies are heavily involved in providing guidance and encouraging institutions that have a plan to be really thinking through this transition because there's a lot of safety and soundness risk, litigation risk in you know moving off of the very popular benchmark rate and having to develop all of the systems and um, make all of the decisions around selecting an alternative I was a leveraged finance banker for many years, and, you know, we use LIBOR as our benchmark, like you said, so I, I can only imagine all the contracts and all the different things that need to be reassessed as a part of this effort. Well, one of the things I want to just shift gears to is that, you know, this podcast is about not just finance, but also leadership. So tell us a little bit about your leadership style. And the one thing I'm really curious about is, has it changed over time? Yes, I think the answer to the last question is my leadership style has changed over time because I personally have had to grow into becoming a leader. I'm a litigator, so I speak extemporaneously. I talk on my feet. I'm in court. I'm advocating and doing all of those things. But so much of leadership, I think, at least for me, was believing that I was in a position to be a leader, that I was capable of being a leader. And that's taken me some time, I think, to really develop that acknowledgement of myself as being somebody who deserved that position and was really comfortable with it. And I think that is an issue that I mentor young female lawyers on, especially there can be a little bit of an imposter syndrome, I find more so with young women than I find with young men. And I really try to keep my eye out for it because there's no reason for that. And I really try to focus on mentoring women to believe in themselves and believe in the value of what they have to say and their potential. So yes, I have changed over time. In terms of my specific style, I'm a really open person and I'm a big communicator. So see, I have to watch that I'm not over communicating because I think that can be problematic. And I think sometimes I know for myself, I over-communicate because I'm not feeling confident in what I'm delivering. There's a lot of power with brevity and silence. So I think that's an important aspect of being a leader, being able to confidently deliver and say what you need and not justify it, but just say it. So that's one aspect. So the second aspect to leadership that I work on is to be an example. 
I don't think anyone on your team should work harder than you're willing to work. And I think you have to be really responsive to the worker team. So if I know that I've set a deadline and I know that my team has pushed themselves to meet that deadline, I need to review the work. And I need to give the work my attention and feedback because there's nothing worse, I think, than being on a team where you've worked hard on something and you don't feel like it matters. The example and engagement is absolutely critical from a leadership perspective. And then the third part of being a leader is giving feedback, giving the positive feedback when it's deserved and in the moment giving constructive feedback. Most people come to law not knowing how to be a lawyer. It's not easy being a lawyer. It's hard. You have to have a lot of different skills. You have to be detail-oriented, but you have to see the big picture. You have to be able to absorb a tremendous amount of information, but in conveying the information back, you have to know what to focus on and what to leave behind. You are paid as a mentor here at the firm has told me, lawyers are paid to think. They're not paid to do a bunch of research and just throw it out all on a page. And it's that extra layer of analysis, thought, and editing that really makes excellent attorneys stand out. But when you're coming in from law school, when you're working at a big firm, you don't have that experience. You don't know what it means to be in service to your clients and the level of work that needs to go into something before you provide advice and how that advice needs to look. And so it is my job as a leader to teach young attorneys how to be good at it. It takes a lot of time and you have to be able to have uncomfortable conversations, but it's critical to developing your team because I'm only as good as my team is. So I view that as an essential part of client service. You know, I think the feedback aspect is also something that I think about all the time, just because we're constantly learning and we're constantly developing. And to this day, right, I'm a senior leader, but I still seek feedback after I do a presentation or after I deliver a report. I'm always asking for feedback and I'm encouraging the junior folks in my team to just make sure that you get feedback every step of the way. Nobody likes surprises at the end of the day. Well, exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I also think you have to get used to hearing constructive criticism, right? That that's normal, that that's part of growing and that's part of learning. I am terrible. I hate not being perfect every second of the day. I am working on it. You know, I'm 15 years into my career and I'm still working on it, but it only makes you better. I think as a leader, I'm committed to providing that for the folks who work with me. Excellent. Now, shifting gears, I always like to learn a little bit more about my guests than I know before. So tell me, Rachel, what are you obsessed about right now? And and it could be professional or personal. I'll tell you that one of the things that I picked up during the pandemic was yoga. I've tried it before, didn't really like it. For whatever reason, this time it worked. And I'm doing it on a regular basis in a way that I never thought I would before. Is there anything that you're obsessed about right now? So it's so funny you mentioned yoga because I too have never been a big yoga person, but I started recently doing yoga with, you know, live stream videos in my house because that's where I am all the time now. And I also really have started to enjoy it. Other things that have really been a focus for me 
I have been just very avid consumer of the news. Everything is moving so fast. I just sometimes I step back and I cannot believe these times that we are living in. You cannot keep up with everything between the politics and the pandemic and the impact on our economy. Everything feels like it's moving at a mile a minute. Because it is. Yes. (laughs) But I think precisely because of my news habit, I have also become obsessed with the outdoors. I never really grew up. We were not an outdoorsy family. So I had very little experience with it. But my sister-in-law, you know, she's like an outdoor adventure person. And she's sort of become my outdoor mentor. And I've been spending a lot of time with my husband and my young boys who are driving me crazy inside the house, outside, hiking, camping, just getting to the forest, literally just being in the forest has been, I almost crave the quiet and the fresh air and just being able to be disconnected, but in the moment. And that's a hard thing for a busy person to be. You're always multitasking. You're always pulled in a million directions. So having those times when you can be present, but also not thinking about everything has been important, I think, especially during these times. And I was going to say, that's probably what you like about it, the uh, juxtaposition, right, between the uh, high level of activity and then being able to just look at the horizon. I'm sure that's probably the draw as well. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you feel that way with yoga, right? Because you have to focus, but it's not on your to-do list. Right. Which I'm sure is very long. (laughs) It is. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. I took so many notes and and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Tilsia. I really appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.